Good morning now, officially. <laughs> Good morning. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. Okay. Today's going to be fun. I'm excited about it. We're in this sort of um, nebulous time where we're not walking through a book of the Bible necessarily. <clears throat> Excuse me. The leaders of the church are just kind of being sensitive to where the Lord would have us to... To press in on where we can move toward Christ. And that picture up there is intentional. Because you see the headlights coming and going. And in our walk with the Lord, the reality is there's only two directions we're moving. We're either moving toward Christ, the headlights moving toward, or we're moving away from Him. There, there's no stagnation. There's no kind of just neutral ground. Because we're in a battle, right? We're, we're constantly in this fight. And so when we pull off the accelerator, we start moving the other direction. So today, one of the topics, no, the topic that we're going to be talking about is doubt. Doubt. How many of you ever doubted anything that you've read in the Bible or heard somebody preach or anything having to do with your faith? Raise your hand really high because every hand should be in the air right now if we're being honest with ourselves. So that's what we're at today. Um, if you have questions, you can text them to that number. Perhaps we will, perhaps we won't. But I, I want to start out by saying, believe it or not, we're actually moving toward Christ if we're wrestling with doubts and questions regarding the things of God. Because it's evidence that we're critically thinking about what we believe. We're, in, we're introspective, we're, we're asking, do I really believe this? And, and to the point, really, that we're seeking answers related to a circumstance, a situation that we're in or that we're facing, something happened to us that maybe caught us off guard or knocked us off course a little bit, and now we're having to wrestle through that specific thing because that's generally how doubt enters in. Rarely is it like this, you're sitting in a dark room all by yourself and just wrestling with this intellectual thought or idea or concept. Sometimes it happens like that. But most of the time, you were in a situation, you saw something happen or something happened to you, and that caused you to question something about the Word of God or God himself. I believe it happens in one of two categories. One of two categories. Um, number one... God doesn't do something we think he should. God doesn't do something we think he should. Or he does something we don't think he should. Those are very broad categories on purpose because we can fit almost every doubt into those two categories. But I, I, I want to be fair. The specific reason for your doubt is not necessarily the topic today. Because we could spend all day talking about all the different doubts that we faced over the years. So I would rather spend our time making some determinations about what the Bible says about how we approach our doubt. Because we all raised our hands a moment ago. We've all doubted something in this book. In what God says about himself. So let's just look at a couple examples of what does the Bible teach about how we should handle it. Sound good? All right, we're going to need some help on that, so let's pray. Father, we ask, Lord Jesus, for your help right now. Lord, you, you know that your people have doubts. If we are truly seeking after you and we're trying to exist in this world, 
there's going to come a time and likely multiple times where what we see around us does not line up with what we understand about who you are or what we think we understand about who you are. And as we try to reconcile, as we try to, to figure out our place and what we believe and who you are, Lord, you've given us some tools that we can put into practice in order to walk through that doubt. I'm confident, Lord, that you don't look down upon those of us that have questions and wonder about the things of God. I think you expect it. And I think that's why you've given us examples in your word of people just like us asking questions. And then you give us things that we ought to begin to do to walk through it. So it seems right and timely to do this right now, Lord. So would you just help our hearts to see the word of God, to see the people who have struggled with the things that we struggle with, to watch what you do in their lives and, and seek to apply those in our own lives. God, we ask for your help now and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So uh, first category, God doesn't do something that we think he should. And we're going to use a New Testament example for this. So go ahead and grab your Bible or your Bible app. And flip to Luke chapter 7. And as you're flipping there, let me just set the stage of what's happening here. Luke chapter 7. So this is John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Okay. I'm working there. All right. I'm almost there. Just hold on Luke chapter 7. So... John the Baptist, he hears about what Jesus' earthly ministry is looking like. Does anybody know at this point where John the Baptist is hearing this? Where is he located? He's in prison. He hears what's going on. And what he hears about Jesus' ministry in no way lines up with what he expected it to be. See, John the Baptist, like most Jews, considered the Messiah, Jesus, that he was going to come and free the Jews from Roman captivity. There was going to be some massive overthrow, some huge, massive military coup, revolt, and take over the Roman government's control. Because they were under serious oppression. It was not good for the Jews, and they tied the idea of the Messiah to this. And what's the word now that John gets what's happening in Jesus' ministry. He's hanging out with tax collectors, or worse. <laughs> right? He's healing blind people. He's healing lame people. He's raising people from the dead. He's telling people to pray for their enemies. right? And he's telling others not to judge other people. Wait, what? <laughs> what is happening now? That's my paraphrase of John. Like, what's going on? Keep in mind, John is in prison. And it's not like he's got this nice six by nine cell and he's got, you know, daylight and three hots and a cot and all that stuff. This is like miserable. He's chained to a, a, a wall in a dark little space with a bunch of other people. And he's used to being where? Out, wherever he wants, in the wilderness, just doing whatever he desires. And now he's in this place. He's in a situation that's brought on with it both physical and mental stress. This is where John is. Seems he's experiencing some doubt about what he thought was true. 
Remember, at this point, he's already proclaimed that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said that out loud to people. He says, repent for the kingdom of God. It's at hand. It's here. He's said these things about Jesus. And now, where is that kingdom exactly? That's what you get from John. It's like, what's happening? So he sends a message to Jesus. So we're in Luke 7, and we're going to pick up in verse 18. That's the background that's happening. So the disciples of John reported all these things to him, all the things that had been happening in Jesus' ministry. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent to the, them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you, that is Jesus, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered to them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and, and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So before we examine this specific situation, I want to make a, an important distinction. And that is the distinction between doubt and unbelief. Doubt and unbelief, they are very different. So my friend Warren Wearsby says this. this. There is a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is a matter of the mind. We cannot understand what God is doing or why he's doing it. Unbelief is a matter of the will. We refuse to believe God's word and obey what he tells us to do. Doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong, said Oswald Chambers. It may be a sign that he's thinking. And doubt often means we're waiting for more information. Think with me real quick about one of disciples of Jesus named Thomas. After Jesus returned resurrected and came back to the disciples. What nickname did Thomas earn? Doubting Thomas. Why? Because the disciples were in the upper room. Jesus comes, and they're like, Woo, Jesus is here. He's alive. Jesus leaves. Thomas comes back. The disciples are like, Dude, he was here. Jesus, he's alive. What does Thomas say? I won't see it. I won't believe it until what? I can put my fingers in his hole in his side and, you know, that whole thing, right? But what was his actual concern? He didn't want to take someone else's word for it. It's not that he didn't want to believe it, but in reality, he wasn't asking for any special treatment. He just wanted the same experience that the disciples had. He didn't want to believe something just because somebody else said it was so. He wanted to find out for himself, and that's okay. The truth, that is the evidence, when presented to a doubter, 
they respond with belief. That differs from unbelief. That is choosing to ignore the information or evidence that you've been given and rejecting it all together. As Wearsby stated, we refuse to believe God's word. Thomas has said, I'll believe it when I see it. Maybe he meant for himself, maybe in that moment, yeah, he really wanted to do that, but he wasn't like, no, that didn't happen. There's no way you're lying. I don't believe you. It's not a reality. He's like, no, I mean, I'll believe it when I see it. And in our, in our place now, obviously, there's a lot of things that we can't see, and we do have to take the Bible's word for some things, and we're going to talk about what that little gap looks like. But I just want to, to make the distinction between doubt and unbelief. One of the mind trying to reconcile these two things, and one of the heart that says, I reject that as truth. Back to John the Baptist. What can we learn from his experience and Jesus' response? The first thing, when John was faced with doubt, what was the very first thing that he did? Who did he go to? Who did he go to? What did he do? He sent two messengers to who? He went directly to Jesus with a specific question concerning his doubt. Are you really the one? Are you who you think, who I think you are, or do I need to look for somebody else? So what do we do with our doubt? Come on, people. What do we do with our doubt? We go to Jesus. We don't bury it under a rock and pretend it's not like there and hope it goes away. We go to the Lord. One reason is because the enemy wants to leverage your doubt against you and keep you isolated and separated so that you go further and further away from the Lord. No. Be honest with your doubt. Just bring it right to him. And what is Jesus' response to this question from John? Look at verse 22. Go tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to him. What is Jesus doing here? Does anybody know? He's stating facts, but he's also making a reference to something. What's that? To Isaiah, the Old Testament. The prophets, when they spoke of the Messiah, said these exact Words. If you don't believe me, go look at Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. These are the words that were spoken of what the Messiah will do. So Jesus is redirecting John to the word that predicts what the Messiah will be doing. And then if you just look at it and glance over it and go, thanks, Jesus, that wasn't any help. I already knew that what was happening. But he's directing him back to the truth, the promises that are being answered. Maybe another question that we should ask is, what didn't Jesus do when he was presented with John's doubt? He didn't defend himself. He didn't get mad at John. He didn't get all upset and indignant. He's like, that's my cousin, my own cousin. He doesn't believe who I am. He doesn't utter a word of that. God does not scold people who come to him with sincere questions and honest doubt. He doesn't do it. So if you're worried that you've got this doubt and you can't bring it to the Lord, 
bring it to him. And again, Jesus points John to two things. The word and the fact that he's trustworthy. The word because it's full of examples of God's faithfulness and fulfillment of promises. That's one of the reasons we have these stories for us is that we can see God said this and he did it. God said this and he did it again and again and again in the lives of broken and fallen people just like me and you. But I especially like the idea behind verse 23. Look at verse 23 with me. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So John has a lot going on at this moment. We mentioned that already, right? He's in this very, very dark place, and he couldn't see or understand what Jesus was doing. And despite the fact that John could not grasp what God is doing, what Jesus is doing, Jesus simply says, trust me. I know what you're going through right now does not make any sense. I get it. But I've got everything right where I want it. And even though it's not happening the way that you think it should, blessed are you who doesn't take offense by it, who doesn't take offense by the way that I'm doing what I'm doing. He says, keep your eyes on me and everything's going to turn out exactly like I have planned. But sometimes we take offense by what God is doing in his greatness and in his plan of accomplishing certain things because he's doing something or he's not doing something that we think he should. It's like, what are you doing, God? No, blessed is the one who doesn't take offense by me as I'm accomplishing what I've set out to do. So we bring our doubt directly to Jesus. Just bring it as honestly and as purely as you can. He directs us back to the promises of his word and to the truth of who he is and the reality of the fact that we can trust in him. So that's John the Baptist's example. Good on that so far? Tracking with me? Okay. Second category. God does something that we don't think he should. So we're going to use an Old Testament example. Now go with me to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. So in this example of God doing something that we don't think he should, is in the psalm, it seems as though God is allowing bad people to prosper. Now, how many of you ever looked around the world and had that exact same thought? Look at what that evil, horrible person has. What? God, why? And look at me. Look at what I'm just trying to do what you call me to do. All right, I'm going to be up front with you guys. I pulled some of this content from a very, very awesome podcast that Mike shared with me a while back by a man named Tim Mackey. Anybody know that name, Tim Mackey? He's the one that helped develop the Bible Project. Very smart man, much smarter than me. So some of this content I'm I'm trying to bring to you. Um, If you want that entire podcast, I'll be happy to give it to you. It's it's wonderful. So um, let's look at the song. Let's look at the very first verse. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So who wrote this psalm, by the way? 
Asaph. It, it says in the, in, the, in the Bible, it says, a psalm of Asaph. No. You're like, who's Asaph? Doesn't matter. He's a guy who's struggling with some stuff. <laughs> but he starts out with this, like, statement of faith. Truly, God is good. Now, we don't know the tone. We can't tell exactly what he's going through. Because he could be, like, yeah, truly, God is good. And he's, like, super convinced. Or he could be, like, truly, God is good? <laughs> like, there's a question mark around there. Um, and I think we get a little bit of... Of, of peak behind the curtain, so to speak, when he continues. So let's look at verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Something happens to this man. And it becomes pretty clear, pretty quick, that he's wrestling with the fact that he's not sure of that initial statement that truly God is good because things are going on in his life. Something knocked him upside of his head and he's kind of off balance. Has anything ever like happened like that to you where something in your life just blows you away in terms of things that you're seeing that don't line up with what you think should be happening and you're like, you're stumbling for a minute. You're like disoriented. You're, you're trying to figure out how does my faith factor into this? Anybody have a moment like that or moments you start questioning everything you thought you knew. But this guy, Asaph, he didn't just trip over a little bump in the road. He's not like, oh, oh I'm okay, I'm good. This translation, the ESV, doesn't do, I don't think, justice to capture what he's happening. So let me read the, the same verse in the NIV. There's an image here that we need to get hold of. My feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my feet foothold. Okay, he's not cruising on that flat ground. What image does that give to you where I nearly lost my grip and almost lost my foothold? He's climbing, right? Any rock climbers in the house? Anybody would not be caught dead up on a rock. One, one person. Okay, the rest of you were going rock climb after this. <clears throat> but the image is there, right? You can visualize it if you've never done it yourself. Let's just say you're 15, 20 feet up and you're free climbing. You know, there's no rope. You've got your hands here. And he says, my feet nearly slipped and I almost lost my foothold. So now he's, you know, maybe he's dangling like this, right? He's <laughs> death below him. I say that all to say this. This is significant. It's not just a little hiccup like, oh, somebody stole from me. No, not that that's a good thing, but something really significant happened. And when you lose your grip and you, you're slipping and you're about to fall, that is a life-changing moment. <laughs> it's serious. But what exactly happened? What is, what is going on in Asaph's life? Let's look at verse, seven, verse 3, rather. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There it is. Why are they getting away with what they're getting? They're getting away, some, and sometimes literally they're getting away with murder, and I'm over here on the struggle bus, just trying to make it from one day to the next. I'm trying to do what I should be doing, living my life for you, and now, Lord, you're allowing these bad people to prosper, and my life is tough. But let's just, let's keep looking at his observations, because we have his observations, what he sees in life, 
Let's start with that, and then we're going to look at something else. So verses 4 through 12, this is what he's looking at. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble, as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten opposition, oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, as people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say, how could God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. This is Asaph. This is what he sees going on around him. This is what is knocking him off balance, off kilter, to question, is God really good? Because that's his observation, but now let's look at his experience, what personally is happening in the next two verses. Verse 13, all in vain, I kept my heart clean and washed my hands with innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Man, this is, this is not good. I have been working myself over and over, keeping myself clean, trying to keep your law, doing what I can. And all I get is being stricken all the day long and rebuked every single morning I get out of bed. This guy, he's having serious doubts about the goodness of God. And friends, this happens to all of us. When life experiences make our hearts doubt what our minds believe. And so what do we do? What do we do? And we learn from our opening example, the first thing we do is we bring that doubt to Jesus. We be real about it, not fearing that we're going to get some sort of condemnation from the Lord. Again, we're bringing doubt, not unbelief. Then we go to his word and try to work through our doubt. But let's add a few things that we can do with our doubt from this psalm. And I think you're going to see that they overlap nicely. The first thing that we're going to do is we're going to attempt to dismantle our own doubt. We're going to question our questions. We're going to doubt our doubt. So Asaph is actually, he's doing some serious introspection here. He's trying to undercover, uncover rather the true motive of why he feels the way he feels. Is he, is he primarily concerned that there's no justice for these people who are oppressing others at the, at the expense of innocent people who are being taken advantage of? Is that his prime concern? Is that what's motivating him to question God? And the answer to that question is no. He tells us himself in verse 3. What's the real reason for him feeling this way? Go back to verse 3, Lee. What is it? For I was envious of the arrogant. He's jealous. At the core of what is causing this doubt is jealousy. You see it play out in the verses we just read. Look at man, they... They're fat and sleek and, you know, they got all these riches and, and I'm just trying to do what I know I'm supposed to do. And I'm just getting hammered by the world. Is this 
at its core, an intellectual crisis of doubt? This jealousy? Is jealousy an intellectual crisis of doubt? I don't think it is. I think it's a heart issue. It's here. Here's the problem. My problem is the problem. My doubt or my jealousy and envy of what then is motivating my thought process to think that God is not just. It's getting in the way. It's an internal issue. It's a character flaw. And as he's pulling apart his own doubt, he's realizing that there is possibly something else that's contributing to his doubt about who God is. Now listen, this is very, very difficult because you have to remove yourself far enough from your doubt to be able to analyze why it is you are doubting. But it is one step toward facing your doubt. Let's look at another practical one because you're all looking at me like, I I can't do that. And that's okay. Immerse yourself in a faith community. That's going to help you walk it out. Let's look at verses 16 and 17. But when I thought to understand this, so now he's, he's again, trying to realistically work this out. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. So he's seeking to understand his doubt on a deeper level. He's not burying it or pretending it's not there. He really is honestly trying to figure it out, which seemed impossible at the moment, right? I've tried to figure out how to do this, and it seemed to me a a worrisome task. There's no way I'm going to be able to do this. Until what? Until I went into the sanctuary of God. That is the temple. And for us, these thousands of years later, not having, you know, had that temple experience, I don't think we understand exactly what he's referring to. So I'll, I'll call this a bustling location center of godly things. 24-7, constantly throughout the day, there's praise, there's worship, there's teaching, there's dialogue, there's conversations, there's arguments, there's classrooms set aside for learning about the things of God. This place is constantly about the things of God. So when he says, until I went to the sanctuary, he's basically saying, until I went to the place where others were, were thinking through the same things that I, were thinking, I was thinking, were, were really focusing on who God is. In other words, it was in the faith community that was active in pursuing the things of God that Asaph began to have his doubt put at a distance. That's where we begin to work these things out, not in isolation. But oftentimes that's what we want to do. We just want to kind of put a a ring around us and be like, no. But listen, like I said, it's likely that a life experience caused you to question and move toward doubt. So you're not going to think your way out of it. You need to experience something else to bring you through the other side. Life experienced cause doubt outside of the things of God. Life experience in a faith community is going to help you work through it. And eventually, he understood 
what was going to happen to those people, right? Eventually, I discerned their end. He came to realize that the good and righteous and just God was going to take care of those people. There was justice. It was going to turn out the way that it should in terms of who God says he is as they face rightful judgment. Immerse yourself in a faith community. But also, be ready to encounter God in the most profound ways and places. Verses 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Wow. (laughs) He's in the pit of despair, right? But through dismantling his faith, picking it apart, his, his doubt rather, facing some hard truths about himself and what he believes, he finds the presence and comfort of the Lord. You see, God was with him every step of the way, even as he's brutish and ignorant and being like a beast toward God, God is with him every step of the way. He met him right where he was. Flip the, flip the next, 23 to 28. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom, I, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. You see his journey through this psalm. You see what he he comes up against and his process for walking through it. But our faith does not exist in a vacuum. It's it's constantly tested and tried and pushed and threatened because we're living real life (laughs) and because our faith is not reinforced by society. Maybe a hundred years ago it was. Today, our faith is not reinforced by society. And so with those experiences and challenges come opportunities to grow in our faith. Having questions and doubts means that you're learning to apply the never-changing truths about the Bible to your ever-changing lives. That's what having questions means. Because you're maturing and you're growing. Your understanding of who God is increasing. This takes time. A lifetime, if we're being honest. But all the while, there's growth taking place. Maturity is happening as we lean into God. Trust that he has the ultimate answer and that in his time, he will reveal it to us. But one of the most compelling aspects of our journey is when we look back on our, on our faith and growth progress. Because sometimes it feels like, man, I'm just spinning my wheels. Like I've been in this place 
for a long, long time. Because we look in front of us, if, if all around us is our, our lives, and, and, and here I am, there's a gap that exists in front of us <clears throat> between what we see in this life and what we believe the Word of God and who God is teaches. Just look at society. Look at the way things are. Look at how things, even in Avesath, like bad people are flourishing. <laughs> there are things that don't line up. And so there's this gap in front of us between the reality that we see and who we believe God to be. And at some point, we need to take a leap and trust God's ways are better than ours. But it's not a blind faith. It's an informed leap that we're making. Something Tim Mackey says is that faith is not the opposite of reason. And Micah said it too. We don't check our brains at the door. <laughs> but Paul is also very clear. We live by what? Faith and not by so there, there absolutely is a faith element to what we're doing. Obviously, if we had all the answers, would we need faith? No. We wouldn't need it. But like I was saying about our growth journey and how we see the world around us and who God is, there is that gap in front of us as we try to reconcile what we see and what we think about who God is. But there's also a gap behind us. And as we've gone to the Lord with our doubts, as we go to the word, as we dismantle our doubt, as we doubt our doubt, we immerse ourselves in a strong faith community, we are being changed for the good. And the things that we once were uncertain of have become less of a stumbling block. Maybe we haven't fully gotten there, but they're less of a hurdle for us because our understanding of who God is, it becomes deeper and deeper and deeper. And so the gap behind us grows even larger as we move closer to the reality of who God is. And it becomes easier to make that leap forward than it does to make the leap back to where we came from. Because that gap behind us is evidence of God's faithfulness to show he's moving us in the direction of him. But I say all that to say is there's going to be constant challenges for us in this life. I think it's only going to get more difficult <laughs> to walk out our faith. And you're going to have doubts. Maybe you're wrestling with doubts right now. I don't know. But I hope you can see that God is not upset with your doubts. Grace, his grace is sufficient to see you through that. And maybe you're not ready to deal with it right now. But at some point, we need to take a step forward. And that first step is bringing it to the Lord. Just, just confess it. It's, it's okay. It needs to get out in the light. And then you move to these other steps that we talked about today. I think perhaps one of the most important ones after confessing and reading the word is being in a strong faith community that can help you walk it out. So I'll leave it there for today. I know it's a difficult topic. I want you to leave encouraged <laughs> as much as you can. It's like, I have doubts. How can I be encouraged? 
Because you're, you're being real about your faith. You're actually pursuing the things of God. You're asking yourself hard questions. Otherwise, you wouldn't care. <laughs> so praise God <laughs> for where you are right now. And praise God for the fact that he moves us forward as we pursue him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the fact that you are faithful. <clears throat> and Lord, that we can come to you with everything. It's not that you don't know that we have doubts, Lord. We hide nothing from you. But we do need to acknowledge it before you, Lord. This faith journey is not easy. It's difficult. Especially in the, in the society we live in today, Lord. It gets, oh man, overwhelming at times. How much the world opposes who you are. And what we believe So I ask, God, that you would help each one of us here today really, truly, honestly seek out the path through our doubt and closer to you. Knowing full well, Lord God, that something else will come along, another experience will happen in our lives, which will raise red flags around us, Lord. But we have a process now. We have a biblical example for us to walk through those things. And we need to run, run to you in those moments. Be in the word of God, trusting in your promises that you never fail, that your word is true. Be in a community of people who are like-minded that can help us walk through our, our uncertainty and our questions and our doubt. And we can doubt our, our, our own doubt even <laughs> and question why we're questioning. Is there something in my own heart, in my own life that is an obstacle to my doubt? God, work in us, I pray. Help us. Glorify you in all that we do and we ask for your help through Christ. Amen.